Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. On today's podcast, we'll discuss why digital transformations fail and what organizations should do about it. The reason I thought it would be good to have this discussion is because while most every organization knows that digital transformation is imperative, not many have figured out the secret soft to make it happen. In fact, there are probably more stories about failures than success stories. The purpose of today's episode is to provide a viable, tested framework for setting a digital transformation process in motion. More importantly, I want to discuss tools that can be used to move digital transformations forward. To get a hands-on perspective of how to succeed with digital transformation, I am joined today by Tony Saldana, previous head of operations is Digital Transformation at the Procter & Gamble Company and currently the president of Transformant, a Cincinnati-based consulting firm focused on digital transformation. As the author of the book, Why Digital Transformations Fail, Tony has documented the steps needed to move from a third industrial revolution to the digital age. In today's episode, we will discuss the five stages of digital transformation, the key components needed for each stage to succeed, and the pitfalls that can be met along the transformation process. So welcome to the show, Tony. It's great to have you on the show and to dig into some of the key factors around digital transformation success, as well as the reasons many organizations have a tough time moving from what I'll call desire to fulfillment. First off, Many people have their own definitions of digital transformation. What is yours? Firstly, uh, thanks for having me on the show, Jim. I've been looking forward to this. Digital transformation indeed has a lot of definitions. I did, by the way, just as an aside, I did a survey of 100 different people. And as you can imagine, I got 100 different answers all the way from, oh, don't worry about it, it's hype. I used to have a digital watch in the 1970s, all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is, Oh, no, it's real. I mean, it's all of those robots coming for us. But in any case, my definition is in the context of industrial revolutions. What I think is we're in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution, as defined by the World Economic Forum, where unlike the previous three, which were driven by you know, mechanical, electrical, and the internet technology, now you have digital technology, which is basically transforming every other industry, right? Everything from media transportation to, you know, social networking, right? And so finance and banking is absolutely in the crosshairs because a combination of these technologies, including the internet, uh, digital capabilities, as well as things like blockchain, you know, make this particularly vulnerable to change. It's interesting because you come out of the uh, retail industry, And many people would say that the digitalization of an industry probably is the most advanced in the retail space. But you came out of a different part of the retail industry, um, being Procter & Gamble. Can you give a little background on what your background is, but also how your book came about? Because it's interesting, uh, rather than taking an upbeat look, your book, Why Digital Transformation Fail, is a little bit of a, hey, here's what you have to avoid. So can you talk a little bit to give our listeners a little background of your background? Yes. I feel incredibly fortunate to have grown up with the IT industry. So I spent 27 years with Procter & Gamble, eventually having run P&G's global IT, information technology, and global shared services, which is almost like a company within a company that 
runs everything, you know, HR, finance, IT, and other capabilities. It was about a $2 billion organization. And I had the privilege of running this in every region of the world. But it also gave me a lot of opportunities to understand digital transformation in the sense of, you know, how can you use digital capabilities to either rewire business models or drive digital products, i.e., you know, smart toothbrushes, right? Or even, you know, completely new ways of operational efficiency. And that's basically what led me to one key insight, which is that the reason why 70% of all digital transformations fail, and by the way, this is a $1.7 trillion, with a T, dollar industry in 2019, right? And 70% of these efforts fail for one simple reason, and that reason and that word is discipline, right? And there are two parts to this discipline. One is clarity in defining what you mean by digital transformation, going back to my earlier comment about 100 different definitions. And then the second is disciplined use of the right methodology to execute this. In other words, most digital transformations are still run with IT project management methodology, which is fine, except that it misses the complete reimagination of the world, as well as the organizational change elements, because you're going to have to completely change the culture of these organizations. And so what I ended up doing was kind of falling back on my other passion, which happens to be aircraft and flying or flying related activities to essentially draw from there the checklist methodology and my own experience to come out with a book on, you know, what is the checklist which might help mitigate the 70% failure rate. In your book, it, it's interesting because it's really a almost textbook format. It, it's really broken down into bite-sized pieces as to, you know, geez, this is how you get from beginning to end or different stages of transformation success. You actually have a five-stage model. Can you explain a little bit about your five-stage model? Yeah, happy to do that, Jim. Here's the problem with defining digital transformation, right? The IT and consulting industry has pretty much jumped on the hype of digital transformation being, you know, the number one priority for most boards of directors. And therefore, you have everybody defining digital transformation their own way, whatever suits their business, right? And so rather than change the world, I figured the best way to address this would be to put this in the context of a five-stage model. The first stage is what most people think is digital transformation, but in reality, it is simple automation, right? So you have your internal corporate, you know, let's say, you know, financial accounting or reporting processes, and you're going to use whatever software, SAP, to automate it. And that's really what most people think is digital transformation, but it's really not. It is automation of existing work, right? So that's stage one. Stage two is what I call silo. This is where parts of an enterprise, it may be a country or it could be the CFO for the whole world, decide, hey, there's something about, you know, this disruptive technology and new business models. You know, let's say, you know, the use of blockchain for intra-company transfers in finance. And they say, I'm going to change the way we work, not by 5 or 10%, but by 50% or 90%. And that's silo change. Uh, stage three is partially synchronized, which is essentially the partial conversion of the entire company. The best example of that is General Electric under uh, Jeff Pimelt, who set about with a vision and got the entire company kind of moving in that direction. But the efforts were only partially synchronized because 
they were not able to execute across the whole company against that vision. Stage four is what I call fully synchronized. That's when actually the entire company is able to do one-time transformation of the business model into the fourth industrial revolution. A good example of that is something like a MapQuest, which still exists today. But, you know, they were incredibly disruptive uh, in the early 2000s. But today, you know, thanks to GPS and, you know, directions being available on every smartphone, they're pretty much irrelevant, right? And so the issue with stage four is you may be able to transform to the latest business models and technologies one time, but the next disruption still catches you by surprise, right? Which takes me to stage five, which is what I call living DNA. That's when the DNA of the organization becomes one of disrupting your own business model over and over again. So the example of that is Netflix. They went from mail-in DVDs to streaming media to original content as in you know, Game of Thrones. And now the international content business models, all within a space of 20 years, right? And so the ability to kind of disrupt yourself has got to be part of the organizational DNA. That's what I've tried to do, which is define these five stages so that, you know, as a leader, when you're setting your goals on digital transformation, you're extremely clear about what you want to do. So you travel globally now, working with organizations to try to move forward their, number one, understand digital transformation, but also move them forward. In working with organizations globally, what stage are most organizations at that you meet? Or maybe what is your perception as you look at the marketplace, where most organizations are today? Most organizations that have a digital transformation agenda, which, by the way, isn't a whole lot of companies. Not universal by any means, yeah. No, no, no. When they do, they usually at stage two, uh, which is siloed, or stage three, which is partially synchronized, right? That's understandable in the sense that they're just grappling with the fact that they have to do something. Most of them do have a corporate strategy, which is the start of stage three. And they are somewhere in you know, trying to get a one-time conversion done. The biggest challenge that I see, and this is really where I feel I'm pushing boards and CEOs the most, is to understand that most organizations emphasize the digital part of digital transformation and not enough on the transformation, which is an organization change management HR process, right? And that's really, you know, what's necessary for many of these companies to go past stage three into, you know, obviously stage four and then stage five. Well, it's interesting because you give a stair-step approach, which is good because I think it shows, number one, you can't skip a step. Correct. But number two, you really move from, as you mentioned, a committed ownership, which is the first stage, which, as you and I both know, is a step in and of itself. But then you get into a little bit more disruption, empowerment, and the change model, as you mentioned, into more of organizational or cultural issues. What is required overall to get the digital transformation started? You mentioned the committed leadership. But when you look at committed leadership, doesn't it also have to be like truly the leadership? In research that we've done, we've seen that, you know, it's very important. Organizations do a much better if their CEO is in, in charge of that process. Is this what you've seen as well in your studies? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, clearly you've been there, Jim. So there is a big difference between leading and having skin in the game when it comes to digital transformation for CEOs, right? And so what tends to happen, 
partly driven by the confusion on what exactly digital transformation is, is that most CEOs will say, oh, we absolutely need to drive digital transformation. Therefore, I'm going to appoint a digital officer or a transformation officer, and they're going to drive all of the change, right? And the problem I have with that is that's involvement, that's sponsorship, but that's not skin in the game commitment. So I went back and forth on trying to figure out what word to use along with, you know, leadership here. And then I chose commitment and then ownership and not just, you know, leadership or empowerment, right? And I think that's the difference. I mean, that's the difference between, let's say, uh, having a Jeff Bezos who bought the Washington Post and rather than putting somebody to kind of, you know, transform it, he basically worked quite literally on a day-to-day basis with the technologists to drive platform changes in the company, while at the same time working also day-to-day with the content editors, but giving them carte blanche to say, you know, you guys know your business. You're going to do exactly what you think is right. And that level of skin in the game is absolutely necessary when you're trying to rewire the entire company. So isn't the whole process of digital transformation more difficult during times like these where there's times of success? Because I know that uh, you worked in the Gillette division and at times P&G invariably struggles in certain divisions versus others. And is it easier to have that motivation to change when things aren't going well, I mean, right now in the banking industry, you know, basically almost every financial institution is making money. They've done well since the since the big disruption in 2008. But, you know, everybody's talking a good game. But at the end of the day, you got to want to change. And changing during times of prosperity is tough, isn't it? It, it is. Absolutely. It is so true that, you know, when there is a burning platform for the industry, nothing focuses the mind like an existential threat. And you're right, in the financial and banking industry, there is clear awareness of potential disruption, but there isn't that existential platform. By the way, I think the same is true in the medical industry. And a large part of this is these industries are feeling somewhat protected unfortunately, by legal and other policy influence that they have, right, in governments to say, no, I think we'll be able to at least prolong the ride. And that's a problem. I contrast what happened to different industries during the 2008 global economic crisis, to make this point. During the global economic crisis in 2008, banking was hit very, very hard. And they made a lot of really good changes there to essentially recover. And they recovered very quickly, you know, two or three years. Let me contrast that with consumer packaged goods, CPG. CPG, by definition, isn't hurt as much by global economic crisis. So although CPG changed, it didn't change enough. And so the next eight to 10 years in CPG were really tough because we didn't change enough. And now CPG has changed significantly. And now, you know, Procter & Gamble and others are starting to really take off. But that's a problem. And that's why, you know, you need visionary leaders who set this goal of disrupting themselves and disrupting themselves when they have the bandwidth to be able to drive that change. Well, you know, similar to financial institutions, an organization like P&G doesn't necessarily price all their products and the margins that you work with are enormously low. 
and when you work with grocery stores or an Amazon, things like this, there's so much competition, the price points, that differentiation is difficult. And it becomes more difficult when you don't control necessarily all the elements, when there's digital channels involved and that movement to a digital channel. Did you see and have you seen as you visit with other organizations that overall the distribution structure and the legacy organization that's used to support that distribution structure fights you all the way along the way? I'm, I'm thinking of banking with the whole area of branches. But now you see this in the medical industry. I, I don't know about Cincinnati, but I can tell you that in Cleveland, every corner there's a new medical facility that's owned by the primary medical organization in the area. And you go, geez, are, are they just building branches when – Overall, what we're looking at is not the quick access to hospitalization. It's more the prevention model or even the fact that my hospital may be in my wrist soon. Yes, no, exactly. I think you're absolutely correct. So what's starting to happen in the financial industry, and you're right about something similar in retail and medical as well, is that while real disruption is coming to the consumers, right? So people like you and me in the retail industry that now have the ability to just buy stuff directly from retail and have it delivered in two hours via Amazon, or potentially in the medical industry where, you know, your doctor may be on your smartwatch or in a, in finance banking where real internet driven banks, you know, at least on the consumer banking front are providing incredible disruptive breakthrough. Whereas the mainstream companies in these areas seem to be somewhat more focused on what they consider to be customer service, which is creating physical mechanisms to get closer to the customers. And look, I don't think it's a question of either or. I mean, I think there's probably a transition period somewhere in between before when these large institutions, you know, can fully kind of take over the digital watches or, you know, the retail banking on the internet directly, electronic and so what's happening in the interim is that these companies are trying to get what they consider to be customer focused by getting closer to the customer. The only watch out that I have is that in many cases, this is driven by the point you made earlier, which is resistance to change, right? So, you know, we have all of these employees or we have all of these assets, you know, how do we use them to get closer to the customer? And that's a little bit like, you know, what the hospitality industry, the Marriott's and the Hilton's did in early 2000s, because they got focused on, well, we have all of these properties and we have check-in desk. You know, how about we put in a kiosk to help people check in directly with a kiosk instead of at the desk? Whereas you had Airbnb who said, you know, why do I need a kiosk? Why do I need a check-in process? Why do I even need a, a room, a physical room to be owned by me? And I think that's the watch out. I, I, and that's why I think banks that are actually creating separate entities for direct digital processes as opposed to physical and digital processes are going to grow much faster than the others. When you look at a digital organization, and we miss this a lot of times, you, you talked about the kiosk, which I will say is digital transformation theater. It makes you feel like you're digital. But in the past, I remember how people went and were really resistant to moving from checking in and working with a travel agent and getting the paperwork to going in and doing it themselves. But they've taken control. And at a company like P&G, one of the things that your organization had been known for and is still known for is the fact that the masses of amount of data that you have available, 
how does data and the ability to look at every single consumer that you can possibly serve, what role does data play in the digital transformation process? A huge, huge role. I do give, back to my early G reference, I, I do give Jeff Immelt credit for essentially having recognized that every company is going to be a data company eventually. You may have driven change too early, too fast, or you know, without any sufficiency, but I think he was right that every company is a data company. And so, yes, companies like Procter & Gamble do have massive amounts of data. And as we can see from the way Wall Street is recognizing data companies, I mean, you know, Amazon just became a trillion dollars type of market valuation company. Companies that own data clearly are being recognized for having these assets. So I think when it comes to digital transformation, I define digital transformation in business outcome terms, which is... You're either creating completely new business models, so, you know, sell online instead of just, you know, brick and mortar, or you basically have disruptive business process capabilities, right? So you do electronic real-time closing of books instead of having a mass of people to do that. And then the third is then, you know, digital products, so smart toothbrushes or smart cars, not just physical cars. And in each of these, Data is the common ingredient because you need to understand data to be able to do smart toothbrushes because what you're doing is you're using data about how the user is running their toothbrush to say, oh, you missed out that part of your mouth, right? And you're doing that real time. You know, you need data to be able to connect the way, you know, books are closed in the company or you need data to be able to go electronic selling. And therefore, I think it's a commodity that, you know, is absolutely invaluable to transformation. So let's say an organization has got the leadership, got the commitment. Let's say they're in the middle stages of your five-stage process. Let's say partially synchronized or maybe even fully synchronized. At that point, some organizations, I wouldn't say stop the process, but in some ways feel like they've reached the promised land. Why do digital transformations fail in what I'll call that middle zone of completeness? There are a lot of organizations that take their foot off the pedal because they, even if they don't completely stop all work, I mean, they do declare victory. And I think part of this is the reward mechanism of Wall Street and others that basically are more focused on short-term financial results change as opposed to long-term you know, systemic organization culture change, right? So Amazon declared, when was this? I think three or four months ago that they were going to invest, I think they said $700 million to digitally retrain their staff. And I read that and I almost fell off my chair because I consider Amazon to be one of the most tech-savvy companies in the world. And they were like setting aside, you know, three quarters of a billion dollars to train their employees on digital that would be very hard for most companies. If Walmart had made that same, you know, reserve, they would be hit really, really hard in their stock price. And so that's the challenge, I think. You know, the difference between the middle stages of digital transformation and the living DNA is essentially organization culture change. And that's an investment that's really, really hard to quantify for many companies. 
Well, it's interesting because, you know, my son is in this last year of university and he's going to be, he's a digital analytics and business analytics. And I told him, I said, man, you, you got it, man. You're hitting the iron rather than the iron's hot because there's such a demand. I was thinking about the same thing that Amazon, they already are aware that trying to find the right people for their growing organization is going to get harder and harder. In fact, they can't find them. I mean, the number that they need don't exist in the marketplace if you took all the people in the marketplace. Because the challenge is, even at university level, digital transformation, coding, all these courses that used to be taught pretty easily, you can't even find the professors now because they've gone to private industry because of the amount of money they can make there. So Amazon is responding by saying, we're going to train our own. Even if we lose some, we're going to do better than if we went out in the marketplace and paid retail and then and plus and not finding the right people. So how do organizations, in your opinion, how do they find the right talent or what do you expect organizations to do internally to create the right talent? That is a really, really good question, Jim. And it's actually one that's getting a lot of thought and a lot of airtime. I happen to be on MIT's Future Work Task Force. And one of the things we're trying to figure out is how do we sustainably source this talent? I think it's basically a combination strategy, right? I think first and foremost, every organization does need to have a digital literacy and digital change HR plan, right? Most organizations try and look at their technologists or digital officers to essentially own that strategy. I think there's equal claim for it to be driven out of HR, right? Because it's, it's a culture change. So I think that's one. The second thing is in terms of very specific skills like data science. The better strategy for most companies is a part buy and a part grow your own talent. And the reason for that simple, what Amazon and, by the way, they're not alone, AT&T's declared a few years ago that they're going to spend a billion dollars. Loblaws, the Canadian retailer, is spending you know, a quarter of a billion dollars. And what they're doing is they're recognizing that it is applied data science that's most valuable. So when you have somebody that knows how your warehouses run, and they also happen to know data science, AI programming, then you've hit the jackpot because they're going to know exactly how to disrupt warehousing using AI, right? And so I think there is a case to be made for getting very, very long-term people development oriented in this space. And then obviously, that's not going to meet all the needs. So then you do have to have a strategy of, you know, buying at retail price, as you said. So we talked about at the very beginning that while we talk about digital transformation, where it's happening, how good it's going, the reality is many organizations haven't gotten unstuck. They're in a very low stage of your five-stage process. Where do you think organizations have to start? What is the one thing they need to commit to that you know when you meet with organizations you can make an impact. Because it's hard to say, oh, we need leadership thinking or we need a different culture. But how do we get to point one? In my mind, point one is for the owners, by the way, which could be the CEO slash board of directors, or if it's a privately owned company, it could be the owner uh, herself or himself. Or as is the case with some of the governments that I work with, I mean, you know, it could be whatever the appropriate government authority. But the first step is for them to acknowledge that we're in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution and that there is a need for a different set of strategies than, you know, what's worked in the past, right? Because I think learning that we got from, I have to mention Clay Christensen, who passed away right. a few weeks ago, and his contribution to the management industry, which is the whole idea of, you know, disruptive innovation, right? 
And so I think that would be the first point, which is understanding that they do need to have a disruptive innovation plan and a strategy. And then in my book, I talk about 10 different disciplines and, and how to go about this one by one. But that's really where I would start. So, Tony, we've run out of time, unfortunately. I, I know this conversation because we're in the same wavelength of our passion for digital transformation. But if people want to carry the conversation further themselves, how do they get a hold of you? I'm available online. My organization is called transformant.io. So that's the word transform and the insect ant, mushed together in one word. And uh, .io, India Oscar. Also, www.tonysaldana.com. Or I'm a uh, very, very interactive guy. I'd even offer my email, tonys at transformant.io. Tony, thank you very much. Um, it was a pleasure reading your book. And uh, I'm only about four and a quarter, four and a half hours as the crow flies from you. And um, I get down to Cincinnati every once in a while. We're going to have to sit down and have lunch sometime. So thank you very much for being on the show today. Well, thank you very much. And I'd love the opportunity to get together with you. So here's some thoughts around uh, Tony's interview today. Number one, um, that interview could have gone on forever. Um, the dialogue, uh, Tony's perspective on things. It's always easy when somebody kind of agrees with where you're thinking, um, certainly on something like a podcast. But I think a couple major takeaways from the discussion with Tony. Number one, Tony's book, Why Digital Transformation Fails, is an important book because it really talks about the staging of the process, going from point A, where it's simply the organizations or the leadership buying in, to partial transformation, to full transformation, to changing the culture, and then actually having an agile culture. So I think the step process is really easy to visualize and to actually implement. Number two, Tony makes it very clear as we continue to try to reinforce this during our podcast that if you haven't gotten the buy-in of the very top of the organization, it's not going to work. Number one, it, you're going to have a hard time to get a buy-in unless the CEO is in charge of the digital transformation process and believes it needs to happen and is willing to do something about it. Secondly, this goes to a lot of the solution providers in the marketplace right now. If you're talking to the middle market and they actually purchase something for digital transformation, the reality is it probably will not work optimally because you haven't been able to move it forward and do not have the top management support to actually have it breathe and take life. My interview with IBM a few weeks ago emphasized this as well, that the onboarding process at IBM kind of makes sure that the stuff that's being sold is actually being implemented the way it's supposed to be because the last thing you want is for digital transformation to fail. And finally, I think the other takeaway is that if there's not a pain, there won't be motion or action. I'd say that 70% of organizations are at the very first stage. If that, you need to move forward. You need to understand that the pain, if you're not feeling it now, you're going to feel it later. Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Rated as a top 10 banking podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And most importantly, please don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. While it only takes a minute, these ratings are very important as we try to expand the distribution of the Bank and Transform podcast to more potential listeners. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out my research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, 
and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. Finally, if you haven't already done so, be sure to register for the Financial Brand Forum being held from April 27th to 29th at the Aria Hotel in Las Vegas. Join me and more than 2,500 of your fellow bank and credit union executives to gain valuable insights from the likes of Seth Godin, Martha Stewart, Steve Young and Jerry Rice, Brett King, Omar Johnson, and dozens of other leaders who will share their perspectives during this amazing star-studded event. And don't forget to arrive early to catch a private performance by Jay Leno on Sunday night. Go to financialbrandforum.com and register today. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lawnbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, have a great week. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.